Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. Hi, everybody. Thanks for hanging around on this uh, weekend so that we can all uh, explore the nefarious doings going on around our nation and the world. I appreciate you joining me here. This is Rick Wagner. He are here at uh, KNZZ 1192.7 and KGLN 980 and 101.3. And uh, let's see, we're also in the Internet right now, and uh, you can also get our podcast. Uh, which, by the way, I finally did. I did some bonus, a bonus podcast, but uh, it's about 10 or 12 minutes long, uh, and posted it on the website. It should be pretty much everywhere, but if you just want to go click on it, you can go to our website at therickwagnershow.com, therickwagnershow.com, and you can uh, just click on that. You should be able to listen to it. It's uh, titled, Are the North Koreans the New Cubans? Hmm. Intriguing, isn't it? Yes. Well, I hope you'll uh, go listen to that. I had some observations on that. I think it was just kind of interesting, came to me. But boy, I got a full slate here today. Uh, first, of course, I think we should probably talk about New Mexico. Not old Mexico, but New Mexico. Uh, everybody was very interested in this uh, New Mexico governor's decision to abrogate the Second Amendment. You know, say that no one could carry firearms uh, in Albuquerque or Benilo County. That seemed to rub some people the wrong way. I did me, but then, you know, I'm, I'm easily be rubbed the wrong way by some of these things. I talked to several people who asked me about it. I'm really glad the way this turned out so far, because what I was thinking might happen was it's clearly unconstitutional. I mean, it wasn't it's I don't believe it's even a close call. I mean, it's not like you have to, like, scratch your head. It's like, no, that's it. Can I do this? No. That's all you need to hear. But she did it anyway because she's terrible. And if you look at what she did during the COVID lockdowns and everything else, she is, uh, yeah, what we call my dr- draconian. I believe that she was hoping, if Biden got elected, to uh, get a cabinet-level position, but she didn't. So she stayed there and somehow got reelected. I have several theories about why that happened, uh, but it happened anyway. So she continued this sort of uh, imperial governorship that she has. And and did this. And it's wrong. I mean, it just can't do it. Not in the United States. Not yet, anyway. And so people were asking me what will happen. And, uh, and usually what happens if somebody imposes a law or order and it has consequences to it, that you usually have to have somebody be impacted by it. In other words, somebody gets a ticket for it or, you know, arrested or whatever it is like that and then take it up to the courts. But it doesn't always have to be that way. I was figuring it very likely might be that way. And if that happens, I mean, this was for, I think, 90 days. Well, geez, you know, I mean, if, if you write someone a ticket and they go to court, and they just, I mean, it's it, by the time it gets to an appellate court, it's going to be over, and the appellate court will probably say it's moot, right? It doesn't, you know, there's no longer a controversy. But the courts can handle it differently if they want. If somebody submits something and the court believes that it is important enough and that damage will be done, in a fairly reckless manner, I think, uh, then it can hear it immediately on the constitutionality of it. And that's what the New Mexico court did, which I was very glad to see. 
the court essentially just said no. I mean, you, this is, you know, I, I mean, to read you the opinion, but probably heard a couple of pieces of it this week. But I mean, it just just said no. And she didn't doesn't seem to care. Now, some of you may know this week that, uh, and you probably saw clips of it because I doubt if you're watching CNN, that Governor Lujan Grisham was uh, interviewed on CNN and they presented her, they ambushed her. This is just ambush, right? With the Constitution. How dare they? Not only the U.S. Constitution, but the New Mexico Constitution. Those sly devils. Uh, they laid a trap for her. She could not have expected it on CNN. And they read the two excerpts from the Constitution and the New Mexico Constitution, which is very similar, about the right to keep and bear arms, and then asked her if she thought she was you know, in violation of it. And she didn't think so. And then they asked her... <laughs> I think this is on the CNN. They asked her if they thought that this edict would result in criminals not choosing to use firearms. She essentially said she doubted it. So what? what, what why are we doing this? <laughs> if you don't even believe it, what, 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 what's going on? A cooling off period is what this was termed by her. A cooling off period. So it's you would imagine in that that she imagines some sort of truce. Right. This is a little bit like, you know, trench warfare and somebody has a truce so they can eat turkey at Thanksgiving, you know, and this this there's there's not that it's not a truce. You, know, and you can't do it anyway. But that seemed to be how she was thinking about it. Very strange. Very strange. But, you know, we have had a couple of decisions. Uh, the Bauer decision that, from New York was very good about the Second Amendment and essentially said that you have to keep in mind one, that people have a right to self-defense and that it may own firearms for that purpose, and that any restrictions on it must be in line with historical precedents. In other words, what the history of this has been. So you can't just decide, well, we're going to change everything about it. Everything that it means is going to be tested by attitudes today or attitudes in Manhattan today. And so that has been hard for them to figure out, but, well, assuming they are trying to figure it out, they would just like to say, give us your guns. I'm not sure that's really going to fly even now. But I always thought that if you wanted to get to historical precedent, and I wouldn't say this is controlling, but it'd be interesting, is you could say, well, look, I mean, in the American West, there were several places that you had to surrender your firearms, you know, when you came came into town. I think Tombstone was that way. I think Dodge City might have been that way for a while. Uh, I'd have to look up a little bit. There are some places in the American West because of the cattle town that they were at the time, or there was a lot of uh, wild and woolly people who would come into town. Many of them, like on cattle drives, uh, the cowboys would come in, and they've been out for a long time, and they're ready to come in and uh, put down some liquor and have a good time, and that doesn't necessarily mix very well with firearms. So they could always say that. It wouldn't. It wouldn't really make a difference, I don't believe, but nobody even raises that, and I figure it's because the people that are trying to implement these draconian, ridiculous, unconstitutional measures against firearms don't know anything about it. They don't really know our history. They certainly apparently don't know anything about the West. I doubt if they even care. So, I mean, do you think that AOC knows anything about what the real West was like? Really? I I bet she doesn't even watch a Western, (laughs) much less know anything about it. So... We're in luck. He struck that down, and uh, I think that we'll see if they appeal it. The New Mexico Attorney General, who's also a Democrat, said that he wouldn't defend it because he didn't think it was constitutional. This uh, this governor is a quite a piece of work, man.
I got to say. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about real quickly was uh, this strike on the auto workers. And we may mention this again, but you know the auto workers are trying to go on strike here, and their demands are way high. They want a forty percent raise. They want you know all sorts of things. And I listened to one of the Ford uh, representatives on on the Finance Channel, and he was saying that with all these the packages and including the benefits and health and this and that, it was almost three hundred thousand a year for an employee that would would cost the company. Frankly. They, they can't afford it. These automakers are not doing great. They're making money, but not as much as they would like to or probably can. And then they pointed out that if this contract were in place that the union originally had proposed, that it would have bankrupted them because they just didn't make enough money to pay it. And one of the things, of course, that really drags them down is this electric vehicle stuff. Now, our automakers don't really have this figured out. They can't make them cost-effectively. They're not nearly as good as, uh, say, Tesla's. But Tesla can make them cost-effectively. The regular car companies cannot. As a matter of fact, Ford said that they lost a billion dollars on their electric vehicle production last year. And that's about $10,000 a vehicle that they lost in what they sold them for versus what it was costing them. The present administration is trying to force everybody to buy those cars in the next, you know, what, 2035, something like that. These guys, they can't do it. It's just not possible. And we did have one good thing is they found a big deposit of lithium that's used in batteries in uh, Nevada, but I doubt they'll let them dig it up. We'll be back. All right, we're back, folks. Thanks for sticking here. I uh, hope I wasn't too rambling in the last uh, segment. You know, this is stream of consciousness radio sometimes because I think it's important just to take thoughts as they come to us and try and analyze them and see what they see what they mean. Not just talk about them, but what's the next layer down, right? Because we talk about this stuff all week on various talk shows and things like that, and and I like bringing uh, some stories to your attention that maybe you haven't heard before. It's always important to me to think about. What is the motivation? What's the plan? And then kind of out of that, what's the end game? Where is this supposed to end up? What's scary many times when you start analyzing these things from the left is there isn't any end game. I mean, it's all very fuzzy. They're so angry at one side, our side, that they don't have a clear idea about what will happen even if they get their way. They're just swinging at their opponent, and they don't want to know what happens if they knock him down. What next? So that tends to make you a little more nervous about it because you say, look, not only are you being destructive, you don't even have a plan after you've, if you were successful. Or if it is a plan, it's childlike. Socialism, childlike. There's another way to describe it. It's a childlike idea. And can't we, We'll all just like live together, and we'll all just do the work, and then we'll share everything equally, and... This is a product of people that have no experience with human nature or don't care. They just want to say something that sounds good for their own personal means. But I wanted to bring up something else, too, speaking of, you know, sort of uh, not good ideas and what's the end game here. We were talking about the automotive, possible automotive, this automotive strike that, you know, they're working out now. And, you know, the, the really high demands that the union had on these folks, so much higher than people that do 
other jobs, you know, police, fire, people who have jobs in the public safety sector of all sorts, things like that, people that, you know, are doing road maintenance. We're talking about being paid four or five times what the average pay for those people are for car assembly. Now, I understand that you want to get as much as you can out of your job. I mean, that's just kind of how that works. And in a sense, that's sort of a function of capitalism. But unionization, when it's given too much leverage, I think becomes anti-capitalistic in a very strong way. There was a time for unions that was probably important to our development. Those times were in the 30s when there really was a lot of taking advantage of labor, and labor had to sort of organize so that it could have a solid front against some very big companies. But those days have largely passed, and in order to secure the votes from the unions, lawmakers have given the unions more and more power through various legislation about how they can organize, what they're supposed to do, and how the National Labor Relations Board is supposed to you know, answer questions and what it can do to employers and all of these sanctions against employers if they don't allow unions to try to organize and do this and that. Started off perhaps as a, as a well-meaning idea, but I don't think it's that way anymore. For the most part, businesses are a little at a disadvantage compared to union power. And, of course, the unions now have enough power to where they can get people into jobs that will further empower them, legislation, things like that. For instance, the unions, we're talking about the American Federation of Teachers, National Education Association, the various, uh, uh, let's see, SEIU. All of these guys have been giving money to almost exclusively Democrats. And in the last election, these unions spent $1.7 billion dollars in the 2022 elections. And it didn't go to Republicans. And all that money, for the most part, was taken from members just as part of their dues. They didn't get a say about how it was going to be used or what candidate it was going to go to or anything like that. And in many states, they don't have a choice about being part of a union. We have a right-to-work state, and every year the unions and their friends in Congress try and get rid of right-to-work so that you can have closed shops and stuff like that. Now, some of you people may be union members out there, and most of the time, on individual levels, it's fine. And where we're at, it's a little a little different. But you go to the big cities where it's a, a few major industries, you can just lock the whole thing down. So I, I'd like to think that they're aware of a certain partnership between labor and management that you have to have. But this uh, head of the auto workers union, what is he, Sean Finn, has been pretty much negotiating in public and apparently, you know, trying to really stir up things with the car companies. And, you know, you can feel how you like went to about how you like about it, but it does seem a little bit theatrical as opposed to meaningful. I also wanted to bring up this mentioned earlier in the last segment about these electric cars and about how Ford had lost a billion dollars making electric vehicles and about you know, maybe up to $10,000 a car or something like that. But I also read that for every electric vehicle they sell, 
they have to sell two gas-powered vehicles to offset the expense and start making any money. This doesn't mean that electric cars some days aren't going to be a good idea. And like I said earlier, Tesla is way ahead on these things. Faster charging, better batteries, uh, much more sophisticated AI, all sorts of these things. And some of the others that are trying to catch up with them are just not there. And, and they're starting to have to buy the rights to some of the Tesla products. So what you're doing is if you cripple our, our industry, then the only person that benefits from that is Tesla. Now, I'm kind of an Elon Musk fan, so okay. But don't you see that as, a, as someone you know in this partnership? I mean, union and management in some of these places have got to be in a partnership. They have to see each side of it. And it can't just be class warfare, which is apparently what it's turned into. So we'll see what the, what deals they've hammered out here and uh, how that goes. Well, that's uh, $1.7 billion. That ought to say something. Well, let's get back to a more, a more happy topic. Uh, Mitt Romney isn't going to run for re-election in 2024. Yes. All you people in... Utah that I've been complaining about, now you can have the opportunity to elect an actual Republican, maybe, if you're lucky, a conservative Republican, to the Senate. Now, of course, Romney, when he left, had to take his parting shots at, uh, you know, the the MAGA people and, you know, the, just yada, yada, yada. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a real boon, I think, to the party. Now, that doesn't mean that the left isn't going to spend a ton of money in there trying to get somebody else in. And if they don't feel like they can get a Democrat in, they're going to try and probably run around and try and find the least conservative Republican and try and work that way. I mean, they've been not happy, but not unhappy with Romney. He's, you know, caused enough trouble. He's become sort of the uh, John McCain. He's the last honest man uh, in his mind. He is, of course, Pierre Delecto, if you remember when he was uh, tweeting out under that pseudonym. (laughs) I would love to ask him how he came up with that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Where did that float in your mind? It's not like something you hear every day. It's not like saying, oh, hi, I'm, uh, you know, I'm Flash Gordon or something like that. No, Pierre Delecto. Did you know a Pierre Delecto at some point in your life? Uh, it seems unlikely. But anyway, so this is a real opportunity for Utah to make a big difference, and it would really help the opportunity there to get the Senate back into Republican hands. I don't know what's going to happen in 2024 in the House and the Senate. Uh, we saw what happened in 2022 where all the predictions just fell apart. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of them are actual reasons. Some of them are just reasons people like to talk about, even though there's probably not much to them. Everybody's got a finger they're pointing somewhere. But the reality of it is you have to figure out what your constituency is interested in and you can't make it so roundabout and complicated that they're not going to listen. And this is sad. There's a lot of things out there that need explanation and that are bad ideas that you can be against but sound good. And if you can't explain why they're a bad idea in like less than two sentences, people just don't listen anymore. So it's a lot harder than it seems. The idea that what we purport to represent freedom, liberty, the capitalist impulse, 
raising society up as a whole, uh, by encouraging production, being producers, those kinds of things are vilified by the left. And many people who oppose that don't even know why. It just seems cool. And they like, you know, and there's always these fringe characters out there. I'm telling you, I'm not even sure we can call them fringe characters anymore. If you look at some of the protests and just in some of the spokespeople for these various things, these various movements, these various ideas, they're people that they're putting forth as their representatives are off the charts. I mean, think about AOC. And think about her squad. Those people get microphones. They say things that aren't just bothersome for us politically. They're absurd. They just don't make any sense. And anybody that's been past high school, you would think, would know that. It's pretty alarming, but it says a lot about the movie. Hi, everybody. Thanks for sticking with us again. I appreciate it. Say, so we have, a, I think, a real treat here today, and I feel very fortunate to uh, to get this guest on, who uh, is just someone I think it's very important uh, to hear from this time of the world's clock as it ticks away. He is uh, Director General Bill Huang from uh, Taiwan. He is the Director General of the Consulate here in, uh, in Colorado, and I thought it would be important, since he is you know, nice enough to be make himself available to talk a little bit about what was going on. We we hear a lot of it from our news sources, national news sources, but and people opining about what's going on in Taiwan and all that sort of thing. But I thought it'd be important for our listeners to hear someone right. And so, so thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, and the first one was. You know, a lot, a lot of our audience out there in this part of the country are fairly conservative and are, I think, pretty strong supporters of Taiwan as sort of the bulwark against, uh, what's happening in, uh, China. And, uh, and some of us are a little worried about what's going to happen if there's some sort of standoff or something and with our military forces and, uh, so many of our assets being tied up in Ukraine and, so, uh, but what I wanted to ask you first was just more businessy. Is I don't think people realize how much of our semiconductor industry and some of our high tech things come from Taiwan. Yeah, I think of Taiwan is comparable for over fifty to sixty percent of the world's semiconductors. And in terms of the most advanced uh, semiconductors, we're talking about those uh, uh, seven nanometers, uh, five nanometers. Uh, that's around 92%. So I think in terms of semiconductors, you're right. Taiwan occupies a very uh, strategic, uh, important uh, uh, position in the world's uh, semiconductor industry. Yeah, and, and the, uh, the I know that uh, we've had a little downgrade in uh, the expectation for the amount of chips to, that may be uh, being manufactured this next year. I guess some of the, you know, there's been a little drop-off in, some of the chip chip use in uh, PCs and things like that, but uh, mm-hmm. you're as you say with your sizing, you make some some of the very sophisticated chips that are far beyond what uh, what we find in our uh, laptops. And yeah. I don't know if people would realize if there was some kind of disruption in that supply, uh, what that could mean to uh, our markets and our ability to to just get things we've taken for granted. So <laughs> let's hope not. Yeah. Uh, if something restructuring were to happen, uh, it would be 
disastrous for the whole world, not only for Taiwan, but also for China and the United States and uh, Japan, South Korea, European, European countries, you name it. You know, it's going to be, you know, basically the world just cannot function with those uh, semiconductors. It, it's everywhere, you know. Those uh, consum- consumer electronics, your iPhones, those um, weaponry, including those missiles, and the fighter jets that, that you know you're using to protect, uh, you know, to help protect Ukraine. So let's just hope that that, that kind of you know uh, situation just won't happen. Yeah, I, and I I have known that uh, that we do rely fairly heavily on Taiwan for some of our electronic parts, our semiconductor parts that we use in our our defense industry, yeah. and. Uh, we're burning through an awful lot of uh, a lot of that right now in uh, the Eastern Europe, and yeah. so I don't know when we're going to replenish our supply. But uh, it's uh, you know it's a guns and butter kind of problem, I guess. But we're uh, you know we need to wake up a little bit to you know what's important to us in the United States, and we've had a long-standing relationship with uh, Taiwan. I mean, ever since 1948, and uh, we uh, we have muddied the waters kind of with the two china policy and this and that and this is this is of course you know i don't believe because of this strange policy taiwan doesn't have an embassy per se over here um because we you know we don't recognize it exactly that way it's you know it's uh, we we worry about the offending the chinese uh, when i they're already offended aren't they <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> they'll always be offended i'll tell you you know very easily offended yeah Yes, I, I, we can tell that by what little things happen and they take them very badly. And any mention, any mention, official mention of Taiwan, um, it, you know, always gets some sort of reaction from, uh, the top of the party there in, in China. And, uh, does, is, is there a certain amount of, uh, trepidation or nervousness in Taiwan with what's been going on with the sort of bellicose nature of China? Yeah. That's, yeah. I think, uh, you know, China, China, you know, you, you, when you talk about China, we're talking about the Chinese kind of Communist Party. Right. And the regime itself, right? Exactly. Basically, it's a regime without a strong sense of uh, security. I think they always feel insecure, especially right now, you know, lots of troubles domestically. So yes. when, they, when they find that, you know, they got trouble, you know, Inside, they try to find a scapegoat, and so in this case, uh, there's no better scapegoat uh, than in the case of Taiwan. So uh, that's what you say, the uh, Berikovsky uh, that uh, you've seen recently, including uh, sending all those uh, uh, fighter jets and all those uh, 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 you know warships surrounding uh, yeah. Taiwan. The fighter yeah, ships so, have been over, overflying, you know, your airspace, and then they uh, launched uh, yeah. a lot of naval maneuvers in the strait, and then uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, these are not new, actually. It's been going on for over seventy some years, but it's only recently that they came to the attention of the whole world. Uh, let me just tell you, uh, share you uh, with you some of my personal story. My father went to this offshore island of Yemen, or back then called Kremoy, back after 1958's bombardment. And I myself, I did my military service for almost two years on that island, too. So I can bear witness that, you know, they are always, you know, preparing for uh, 
for any kind of uh, you know invasion scenario against Taiwan, if they can do it, they go ahead with it. It doesn't. It has nothing to do with how the outside world reacts to, to China. It has everything to do with whether they are prepared or not, or whether they they think that the outside world will, will you know stand down and maybe allow them to to do whatever they like. So my message is that you know tell the Chinese don't do anything stupid, and the world must be very steadfast in you know telling them that if you do some, something crazy. You're going to end up in a situation worse than what Russia is uh, now facing in Ukraine. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, it's, it, they don't make a secret that they wanted to dominate uh, certainly the uh, not only the Southeast Asia and maybe even the Indian subcontinent someday. And yeah, yeah. we have allies there besides yourself. I mean, we have New Zealand and Australia is not very far away. And yes. if if they get the feeling that we're not in the game, you know, 100%, it's hard on yeah. them because they're they're yeah. looking right down the Chinese barrel there. That's right, that's right. And if you look at uh, what they did in South China Sea, you'll get a sense that there's no no limit as to their their ambitions and their aggression there. So the liberal democracies, especially countries along the first island chain, we must stand together. Otherwise, we hand together. Uh, we hand together because, well, you know, guess what? You know, in a scenario, once Taiwan, if Taiwan were to fall into Chinese hands, either by force or voluntarily, you know, you would, you would end up with a situation, um, almost like World War, before World War II, because it was exactly from, from Taiwan, uh, when Japan launched all those, uh, you know, attacks on, uh, the Pearl Harbor and right. also all those kamikaze fighters, you know, at the end, uh, towards the end of World War II. So Taiwan, strategically very important and the world thinks that whether we should help Taiwan or not but from Taiwanese point of view it was exactly Taiwan who fended off China and all the other authoritarian re- regimes for over 75 years without due to recognition and appreciation from the outside world I'll tell you that yeah I, I think a lot of people are, are unfamiliar with uh, how you know the nationalist army had been fighting uh, the communists and then had uh, retreated, Chiang Kai-shek retreated to, to Formosa, to Taiwan, and, yeah. uh, you know, established that, and it became sort of a bulwark. I, I think yeah. if, if this hadn't happened in, you know, 48 and up up to, you know, like almost 1950, then yeah. who knows if the Chinese would have continued to solidify their their hold on that, a little bit like the Soviet Union did in Eastern Europe. So, That's right, that's right. So I, I, that, that's a tremendously important thing that people have, you know, sort of forgotten about, sir. And, uh, I, I hope that they wake up to it in Washington at some point. But, yeah. uh, what do you think about this North Korean situation? I mean, you're a little further away from, from than Japan, but, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to see somebody that nutty, uh, you know, you, 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 you kind of want to laugh, but you can't because it's, he's, it's terrible. And I feel for those people. Yeah, yeah. I we we'll feel really sad for those people uh, to be under that well what you call a crazy family over over several generations, right? Right. But, uh, what to their own people and to really harass uh, the neighboring countries. You know, behind them you have you have the Soviet Union first and then China later behind them as their backup. And it is even so nowadays with the situation in uh in 
Ukraine, and you see China, Iran, you know, North Korea, all those bad guys banded up together, and you know, either openly or secretly, uh, secretly uh, support the Russian aggression in Ukraine. That's exactly the kind of situation we want to avoid because you know you are not only dealing with uh, North Korea, you are dealing with the support behind North Korea that allows the Kim family to do whatever they like to their own people and also to the outside world. So the root of it is, is actually the kind of you know open or covert aggression by China by also autocratic regimes like China or Russia. Yeah, that, that, that there's a proxy sort of uh, right, sort that right. goes on with North Korea, and I actually yeah. recorded a little podcast for people to listen to that I I felt like that uh, North Korea could turn into sort of a, the way that the Soviet Union used, used the Cubans in the 70s and 80s, you know, sort of, That's right. uh, sort, right. sort of you know um, as uh, mercenaries from various places, and even more so with North Korea because they're you know they need food. And, uh, they need, uh, medicines and they also need a little bit of money. Uh, yeah. And so a lot of which is easily supplied by even the Soviet Union, mother at Ukraine. Uh, that's right. That's right. So it's, uh, it, it's very helpful to the Kim family. Uh, mm-hmm. whoever succeeds him down the road, I guess, his, uh, mm-hmm. sister or whatever, uh, to, uh, to just let their people essentially hang on. And right. I, I know what what you're saying about always scapegoating. I know China scapegoats Taiwan for all their problems if they, internally, and of course North Korea scapegoats the United States and Western powers for the fact that they are starving their people. But uh, and if you control a media, I suppose, and yeah. this is this is what happens. But uh, you know the the sort of overall picture I think we get here. Is this a sort of continuous escalation this last year, year and a half from mm-hmm. China? And mm-hmm. it's hard to, you get this feeling, and we're very far away from it. That's why I wanted to talk to you. You get this feeling that something is going to happen at some point. And, uh, I, I think that in the past, whenever the party chairman, in this case, G, mm-hmm. he, uh, is, is kind of in trouble. You know that yeah. they're having internal problems. They have they have uh, problems with employment and a, a number of other things. Part of it from their crazy uh, policies on COVID, and that l- many times to solidify support, they've done some sort of military action in the yes. past. Yes, uh, like I said before, when they have trouble inside, they try to be aggressive outside, and it is you know, if you watch closely, actually, you know. Their intensified aggression against Taiwan actually uh, synchronizes with their uh, worsening problem, uh, domestic problems. And so, actually, it's not the strength of China that we worry about. It's the weakness of China that we worry about. And plus, the society of China, uh, compared to the, you know, the, uh, the system in China one year ago, now it's virtually a one-man shop. Xi Jinping closed the shop. I just mentioned that rationally, I don't think uh, they should do something, uh, you know, crazy against Taiwan. But you just never know what a one-man shop, you know, can come up with. You know, in the case of Xi Jinping, he is, I think he he is a man with a strong, magnetic, uh historical mission that he wants to accomplish something, what he called the... Uh, uh, 
the the China dream or something. Yeah. But if he wants to deliver it, no matter what, then you are facing with, with another kind of situation. You cannot reason with him because he is in control, and no one you know is in a position to really you know uh, give him a second opinion. So that's the kind of situation that we'll need to watch out very constantly and very diligently because you know when he starts to do something crazy. No one in China can can uh, talk back to him, or maybe give him some uh, advice and say, "Well, maybe you know, you better not do this." Look at the way he perched his uh, his armed forces, uh, the leadership, the leading uh, leadership cadre of his armed forces right now. Virtually, he wiped out the whole leadership of the rocket uh, rocket army. You know, the ro- his, 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 his his yeah, ro- his rocket would, forces, would, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Who in his right mind would, would do something like that? You know, there, there's a certain uh, peculiarity to his uh, decision making uh, process. I was, I would say, yeah. Well, we see this in the, you know, in the re- not so distant past with Stalin, who before World yeah. War II had so uh, purged his own leadership in the military that uh, yeah. were not for the fact that he had Zukov and so forth. It was actually in the Mongolian area. He hadn't gotten that's around, right, hadn't right. gotten around to getting him yet. It was the last good general that he had, and uh, they paid quite a price for that. I, I think yeah. that that's sort of the that's the tendency of dictatorship is to right. eradicate right. people who do not agree with you. And we have the same thing in Iran, obviously. And there's, yeah. uh, we see China with uh, reaching out not only to Iran, but and I've talked about this on the show. This they're in Africa fairly strongly. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. their roads and bridges initiative there, which is really just a way to get African nations in debt to them, so yeah, that they can yeah. so they can manipulate them. This is all very, I think, very uh, frightening if you look at it, and especially when you, like you said, you have uh, the Chinese. Well, really, the the Chinese Communist Party is is kind of boiled down to one guy now, and yeah, he yeah. would he wants to exercise sort of a, an empire building. And then you have mm-hmm. Putin, who clearly does. I mean, he's pretty much said that he'd like to reorganize what was m- once most of the Soviet Union. So mm-hmm. you have two people uh, on that same path, um, and it's it's a very uh, it, it's very troubling. I mean, we have always right. had the policy not to allow somebody uh, to like each other over there. In other words, I guess yeah. I'm stumbling around. We, we would prefer that either Russia or China liked us better than the other one, right? And, yeah, that's right. and that's right. we, we did not want to see them uh, get together, and they're very much getting together now. And although I think that, I think that, and I'd be curious what you thought is. My feeling is is that China would would like to sort of see Russia end up sort of like a a puppet government, or you know. A, that's right. That's right. Let's just say uh, they are strange bad fellows. Traditionally, the Russians and uh, the uh, the uh, Chinese communists don't see each other eye to eye. But now, because Russia is in, you know, is in big, deep trouble in Ukraine, so they need uh, Chinese, uh, you know, assistance uh, momentarily. But uh, if you are, you, if you are really looking into their nature, I don't think they can be friends for long. So what what I meant is that liberal democracy have to stand together and be firm and steadfast uh, when it comes to uh, dealing with Russia and and China. Uh, to an extent that, you know, they don't see a way of them, you know, complicit with each other and uh, get what they want individually. Yeah. 
So that, that's the best way to deal with uh, autocratic regimes. You don't allow them to, uh, you know, stand together against the uh, uh, evil democracy. Well, I, 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 I couldn't agree with you more, and we need to wake up a little bit to it over here. And as far yeah. as standing firm on something, uh, our present administration, and I won't ask you to comment, uh, seems the only <laughs> thing they stand firm on is, uh, you know, hitting their own citizens with problems. But I, I know you are a busy guy and you need to go, and uh, I appreciate the time you spent with this, and I hope someday in the future to be able to talk to you uh, again, uh, Mr. Okay. Director, Mr. Director General, and we hope you, we appreciate your time to help people in Colorado understand things a little bit better. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, yeah. and uh, and good luck, and good luck to Taiwan. Okay, same to you. Thank, thank you. you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, I I know that was a little hard to hear because we had a you know we had telephone line, and I think it was a little difficulty in that. But uh, and then of course we have a, you know a, a a language issue. But there was a lot in there to to take from someone. I really wanted to have our listeners. Hear from someone who really was involved with what's going on over there, instead of just a bunch of talking heads talking about it. Uh, he had served; uh, the director general there had served in the military there, and we had. There's two islands, and I mentioned them before: Quimoy and Matsu. And he was talking about that his father had served in the military at, at those one of those islands, and he had served on one for some time. Those are huge sticking points because they're between. Um, Taiwan and China, and China really feels like they're in their waters, and uh, they may not—they may seem inconsequential in the grand scheme of things, but they are symbolically uh, very important to the Chinese. To that they're sitting there, it's sort of you know like it's uh, it's like something in their eye. So those are sort of good early warning areas to see what's going on. I think the Chinese people have uh, really been dealt a hard hand here, and as we know the. Censorship and things like that are very bad. But the reason it affects us, the reason it's so important, is that in terms of things that we get here, Taiwan supplies a lot more of our electronics and some other things we didn't get into than we ever got from the Ukraine. And we're not saying that we should abandon the Ukraine. I'm just saying you you better be ready to uh, deal with the situation in the South China Sea which could easily be a bigger problem than what's happening in Eastern Europe. And, you know, what, that's why I wanted to ask also the Director General that uh, in the past, when Chinese uh, leadership has had internal problems, they have taken some sort of military action to uh, sort of rally the troops there in China and make some big thing about outside aggression and they're having to deal with it and, you know, and make it sort of a nationalistic thing to sort of take the focus off some of the problems they're having. And they're having real employment problems and and uh, some consumer issues as well over there. And I don't think that we're going to be able to predict exactly what's going to happen, but we better pay attention. Thanks a lot, folks, for listening. Talk to you later.